So we talked about Daniel, his life. You can see that in the yellow. It was about 90 years long. You can see the different leaders that um, he had overlapped with over the time. Uh, so it was quite a number of Rhea leaders trying to keep things straight there in itself. And then sort of what happened after his death. We also touched about the outline for Daniel, that the beginning of the book starts with more of a personal history of what was going on in his life and some of the trials, and that that was written in Hebrew. And then the book switches into Aramaic, and then we talk about the history of the Gentiles and the times of the Gentiles, but also begins some prophecy for us at that point. But then as he begins the prophecy, partway through, he moves back into Hebrew. Then we get the prophetic history of Israel during the times of the Gentiles. We also talked about this, the the, uh, beginning of the um, visions that he had and the different empires and how they would fit together over time. We talked about uh, the correlations of the dreams between the images and that found chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, and the different kingdoms they had lined up with. So went through all those things. And again, it brings us another bit of an outline of what was going on a little bit more in detail. We had handed this out last time uh, of the overall book and the detail, and we had got to the end of chapter 8 last time. So things to remember as we move into chapter 9, and we're really going to spend all our time on four little verses, and I'm sure some of you are aware of that already. Um, If we look back in Zechariah, We'll find this verse, Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me and on him, him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. So who does Zechariah 12.10 speak of? Just because you're a pastor, I won't put you on the spot because you're looking at me. Okay, let's look off. Let's look one more. What will they be mourning? They will be mourning. I just took this directly from Skip. This was something I was reading this afternoon. They will be mourning their historic rejection of the Messiah at the point that they recognize They'll begin to repent, and at that point, they'll be saved. Finish the transgression, and second, make an end of sin. A a better translation, they'll bring about judgment on sin with finality. That's Israel's sin, the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. So this verse, Zechariah 12.10, refers back to that. Has Israel done this yet? No, and it's important to remember that as we dive into chapter 9. So these are some things to remember. We haven't seen this yet. I I don't know how some people get around that, but they they try to. But we haven't seen this yet. So that's one thing to remember. We're going to talk a little bit about amillennialism and premillennialism tonight. Zechariah, just a few short verses away. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land 
the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. Again, not something that we've seen. Skip's comments on this was, all of that speaking, both of those things speaking of a future spiritual restoration of Israel. So that's one of the things we're looking for, is this restoration of Israel. But it hasn't happened yet. There are those people that will make the case that it happened on the cross. And in some regards, yes, at a personal level it did, but that isn't the nation of Israel yet. We had talked last time we were together about the concept, was God finished with the nation of Israel? And if we believe that God's promises continue on, and he says, okay, I'm going to deal with the nation of Israel, then some people set them aside when they come with the church and say, well, God set aside Israel, period, that's it. But the plain reading of Scripture, I think, is much different. I don't think he's done with Israel yet. There's just this giant pause button right now, and he still has to come back to them. Um, So that's what we're saying here. So these verses, we think, indicate that, okay, God isn't done with them. He's just put everything on a little bit of a pause. Okay, so some more things to remember. When we talk about the 47, 42, and, and... Seven weeks. Did I say that right? I hope so. Um, the reason we say the, the weeks when we see in Daniel mean years comes from Leviticus 25.8. You shall count seven weeks or Sabbaths of years. Seven times seven years. So that time of seven weeks of years shall be 49 years. So it's from this verse in Leviticus that we pull across when Daniel is given the vision and No, when Gabriel comes and talks to him and tells him these things, they were saying the seven weeks there, the week represents, it represents years. So, Daniel chapter 9 itself. So, you got got a picture. This comes from somebody else's transcript because I didn't have time to redo it. You got a picture, Daniel. Realize that the captivity of Daniel is almost over. And as the captivity years, because they were told they were, how long they were going to be there, and as the 70 years was drawing to a close, Daniel was concerned of what was going to happen. And he begins to pray. And, and we're going to read through the laments at the beginning of chapter 9 in just a second. And he begins to confess sin. And, and he's wondering what's going to happen. So when he's praying, confessing, wondering what the future is going to be, that's when the angel Gabriel, and this is the first time we see Gabriel mentioned, the angel Gabriel is going to come and talk to him and explain things to him. So, chapter 9 opens up. Um, I used to, that's one problem with the internet nowadays, an easy click on them. I've got some electronic books. It's like, wow, that's really interesting. I wonder what he says in his book, click. And um, just too much to study with. But anyhow, chapter 9 opens up with Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years of the desolation of Jerusalem. It concludes with Daniel's third vision given through the angel Gabriel, which provides one of the most important keys to understanding the scripture as a whole. Although previously Gentile history and prophecy recorded in Daniel was related to the people of Israel, the ninth chapter specifically takes up prophecy as it applies to the chosen people. So it's somewhat more into the broader spectrum of those that are chosen by the Lord, those that are saved. Jeremiah had written his prophecies in the closing days of Jerusalem before its destruction 
of the Babylonians. In 597 BC, Jeremiah had even written a letter to the exiles in Babylon. So you can see that in Jeremiah 29, in which he announced that their time in captivity would last 70 years. So this is where we step into this, that this time of captivity is almost done, and Daniel is a little worried of what's going on, uh, how it's all going to work out, and that's when Gabriel sets on the scene. So here it is. We're just going to read a few verses from here. In the first year of Darius, the son of Azarias, oh, forget it, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So, so Daniel had been doing some studying or some reading, and he's like, oh, hey, this is getting close to the end of this. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with the fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, with those who love him and keep his commandments. I don't know about you. I'm going to just go on a side trail here for a second. Does anybody ever read through and studied lamentations and laments? I, I think they're awesome because they put us in perspective. So when we look at laments, we begin to feel and understand the perspective of where we are as sinful men. And it's not bad. It helps us understand our place in the solar system, if you want to say it that way, and where God is. And that's where Daniel is, in this place of lament. And and these verses are great. O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from our commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princesses, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. I'm sure Daniel wasn't one around sinning and doing all these, but he doesn't, there's no blame. It's a lament on behalf of the whole nation and of their history and how they continually walked away from God. And he's not, he's not putting himself above anybody else. He said, this is what we've done. And we've just rejected you, Lord. And we're deserving of nothing. So his lament continues. Look at verse 20. Gabriel answers, He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. 
at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Oh, how I wish God would answer prayers like this sometimes. <laughs> you know, here it is. Going to give you the answer. Going to tell you what's going on. So now we get into Daniel. We're just going to look at 24 through 27. These are probably some of the most difficult verses to put together. And there are, there are churches that have split over this. There's been fellowships that split over this. Um, Please, if you hold one eschatological view over another, it doesn't mean the others are pagans and not going to heaven. <laughs> we might find out we have it wrong. I don't think we do, but uh, just a little grace with one another. So the conclusion of Orthodox Jewry, obviously non-Christological. So when they look at the 70 weeks of Daniel, the end with, the, that with them, it ends at the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So if you're talking to somebody Jewish, 80, 70, that's the 490 years, it's done. But it, it's not an ample explanation of the text. And when you start trying to time it out, it really doesn't fit very well. A 490 years, would, if, depending where you, it all depends where you start from to where you get an ending. And it just doesn't seem to flow and fit with the text. But if you're talking to somebody Jewish, they would say those 490 years, the ending of all that happened at the destruction of the temple. So here's the verses. Verse 24. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So this is a summary of all that will be accomplished, the sort of things that are going to come. This is what's going to happen. So what does Gabriel say? Gabriel says it's, this time is to finish the transgression. We're going to put an end to sin. We're going to atone for iniquity. Some of these start sound familiar. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, which is probably one of the harder ones to understand, and to anoint a most holy place. Great list. I'll leave it. No, let's look at the list. So what's it mean? To finish the transgression. It means to bring an end to. The, the reference is Israel's course of apostasy and sin and the reason for the dispersion to begin with. That there's going to be an end to all that. And that's why we say Israel's been set aside because that hasn't happened yet. It's not completed yet, but one day it will be complete. To put an end to sin, there's two aspects. It's to take away sin and it's to bring sin into final judgment. Last time I watched the news, this hasn't happened yet. Then it talks about to atone for iniquity. This is where it starts to sound familiar. It's like, oh, wait a second. That, that has happened. 2 Corinthians 5.19, For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sin against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. But that's happened at a personal level. That hasn't happened at the national level with Israel yet, but it has happened at a personal level. 
to bring in everlasting righteousness. So in some sense, Jesus accomplished this at the first coming because we as sinners can come to Christ in faith. And what happens? The righteousness of the character of that messianic kingdom comes to us, but it's not been completely fulfilled. It's that we, we, we are living in the kingdom, but it's here, but not yet. We're citizens of the kingdom because we've come to faith in Christ. But that kingdom isn't physically here yet, and we still wait for that kingdom to come. So, to bring in everlasting righteousness, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. For the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up my righteous descendant from King David's line, and he will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and righteous throughout the land, and this will be his name. The Lord is our righteousness. In that day, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. Don't think this one's happened yet either. Again, watch the evening news. I mean, I have Christ's righteousness in my life, but I don't see the righteousness of Christ in the nations or with Israel yet. So we're waiting for that everlasting righteousness. This better not be everlasting righteousness what we live in today. And that's why I say it isn't here yet, because I don't know by whose standard this would be everlasting righteousness. Then, to seal both vision and prophet. This one's a little harder, so I just took a quote directly from Walverd on this. I was using Walverd, Wood, Isaac. I forget the other three or four guys that I had, but Walverd had a good quote on this. This is probably best understood to mean the termination of the unusual direct revelation by means of vision and oral prophecy. This expression indicates that no more is to be added and that what was been being predicted will receive divine confirmation in the form of actual fulfillment. So just meaning, okay, it's done. You've got what I'm going to give you on this part and we're done with it. And we don't get anything more until we see revelation, which really expands on some of this. To anoint the most holy place. Most people think it's to do something to do with the temple. But which temple? There are some that would hold to that this was the dedication of Zerubbabel's temple, which later was desecrated in 168-167 B.C. So they think, okay, the most holy place, it's happened. Well, did it happen? We, we did see a ban on Jewish worship. We did see other gods such as Zeus being worshipped in that temple. So certainly it was desecrated. But, but was that what he was talking about here? There are others that believe it's the new temple in Revelation chapter 21. And there are still others that believe it's a reference to Jesus himself. Or is it another temple in the millennial? In Ezekiel 43, 1 through 5. So there is going to be anointing of a most holy place. I, I would like to lean that that's going to happen in the millennial. But when you look at it, there are other people that pick different things. I do not think that it was Zerubbabel's temple. And if it was, it was just one of those partial fulfillments. And, and there's a couple of reason, reasonings for that. So Ezekiel 43, 1 through 5. 
Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of God, the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory, and with the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Shabar Canal, and I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So, I still go back. Which, which temple? Don't think the temple... Well, here. We'll come back to that in a second. Because I, I don't think that the... The whole desecration has happened. I, I, I think we're looking to that because simply Christ talked about what was going to happen in the future. On to verse 25. But there's lots of questions around that, so we're just going to leave that. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand, this is Daniel 9, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince... There shall, there shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. So it's saying this is the beginning of the countdown. When the decree goes out to begin to rebuild the holy city, and this is where a lot of the arguments start. Verse 25. Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. So has this happened? Well, we got to figure out the timeline. Some people believe it started with King Cyrus of Persia, who issued a decree to rebuild the Temple of Jerusalem in 538 B.C. But the issue that we get into is timeline. When we try to add 490 years to it, where does it come? Some people believe Ezra doesn't begin to work on the Temple until 520 B.C. is what we can see from history. So they go, well, that was the decree to rebuild, but we didn't start until here. It sounds like building projects that we have in our day and age. Took 18 years to get it going. Um, but in his decree, there's no re mentioning of rebuilding the city. It's only talking about rebuilding the temple. It was supposed to be the whole city, too. So we look further. Ezra 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred up the heart of Cyrus to put his proclamation in writing and to send it through his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any, any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem to Judea to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. 
and may your God be with you. Wherever the Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for their journey, and livestock, as well as a volunteer offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So, it's just to rebuild the temple at that time. Again, the work begins, but there's no mention of rebuilding the city as a whole. That doesn't come into 445 BZ when King Artaxerxes gives permission to rebuild the walls. So now we have the beginning of building the walls. If, if you do some study, it took them, I forget how many years, but it took years and years for them just to clean the rubble of the streets so they could get building anything. So it's very fascinating as you go through the history. Nehemiah 1.3, this is a bit of a side. And they said to him, the remnant there is in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So remember, this was Nehemiah as he's entering the king. And so in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? That you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Well, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me And he had given him a time. Okay, so here, Nehemiah goes in. and He's all sad. King Artaxerxes agrees that he can go back and he begins to rebuild the city. In the amillennial interpretation of this passage, they would not consider this as the starting point for the 490 years. They go back, some of them go back a little farther and they look at 538 as the decree to rebuild the city and rebuild the wall. Which still doesn't make, those who do that, it still doesn't add up 490 years to when Christ comes. Here's the decide. I just found this when I was studying, and it talked about Cyrus, and, and this is interesting. This was predicted in Isaiah 150 years before, and this is why Scripture is so interesting. How did Isaiah know that the leader 150 years later was going to be Cyrus? But he names him. Isaiah 44, 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, the foundation shall be laid. So when they didn't start the city, Cyrus did start the temple building. And it's just fascinating that that is in Scripture 150 years before the man ever stepped on the throne. And God names the exact king. And Isaiah writes his name down. And again, I will raise up Cyrus to fulfill my righteous purpose and I will guide his actions. I will restore my city and free my captive people Without seeking a reward, I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. If you're to go to 13, the ESV will use he, but the he is a reference back to verse 1, and it's back to Cyrus. I thought that was great. Now verse 25. 
Daniel chapter 9. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, then 62 weeks, and it shall be built again with the squares, the moat, and the trouble. So this is the beginning of the countdown to rebuild the city. Walford had this to say. In making a hard division between these two time periods, it seems that the ESV translators have departed from their philosophy of producing an essentially literal translation. A better literal rendering would be, no one understand from the going forth of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the leader, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The two time periods are connected and precede the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one. So it's from that declaration, which Artaxerxes commits to the whole thing, that we have 490 years. And that's about what I felt like when I got about this far. Because there are timelines and all these little additions. I'm just going to show you a couple of them. Um, It'd be too long to go into all the detail, and you would all fall asleep. It's hard. I I should get that one on a piece of paper for you. But if you were to look up online, Harold Hoshner, H-O-C-H-N-E-R, you will find this chart. Guarantee it. Harold Hoshner, you will find it. It's the most popular one out there. So you'll have no trouble finding it. And he works through all the numbers. As a matter of fact, on the Land in the Book, which is a booty production by Dr. Charles Dyer, right? Uh, he uses this one. It's been around. There's another guy that he interacts with, and I didn't have time to read the paper because it was 278 pages, a Dr. Anderson. And they go back and forth on the numbers, on, on correcting. He's cr- trying to correct Hoshner and... Uh, it's a long one. But if you search that up, you'll get some understanding of how they put the days together and when it fits into predicting exactly when Christ will come in. And March 30th, 33 AD, I should have put in there, is the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. And if you go back to Hoshner, he can figure it out from 44 BC all the way down, and that's the day that it ends up. And it fits. You ask me, I can send it to you. <laughs> but if you search it up, it's, it's, it's easy to find in all my writing. point of bringing this up as you go through the verses, we talk about the 490 years, and it's confidence we can have that you can look at that and say, okay, talk about 490 years. And it goes back, and you can count it right up. And you can, because they know, we know that the Jewish calendar runs on lunar months, right? So there's a little bit of change as it goes through. But they can count for the extra days that are in there. And they go by 30 day months. And they can come up to, you have two choices Christ was either 30 or 33 AD, because it has to end up with a Passover hits on that Friday. And in 33 AD, 
It's on the Friday when the crucifixion happens. So he rides in the, the week before on the Sunday. So it all lines up. Otherwise, it's off by a little bit. There's only a few choices. Verse 26, and we're going to close soon. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end, there shall be war. Desolation is decreed. This, when you read it through, there are a lot of people that says, as you read this through, there seems to be a natural gap in this verse. Like, wait a second, some of this has happened. The anointed one has been cut off, but we're still waiting for some stuff. Um, Others believe that there's no gap, that there's 69 weeks in the last week, the the 70th week of Daniel, just all run together. And if you run them all together, um, they would say the seven years begins right when Christ is ascended, and and that ends everything shortly after that, which would be sometime in the beginning of Acts. And somebody from an amillennial stand would say, there's no gap between the 69th and 70, or very little gap, which means everything ends up as being fulfilled, and we are now in the millennial kingdom right now. That's how an amillennial would put it. No gap, we're here. Premillennial, when we read this verse, we say, well, some of it has been filled, but not all of it's done yet. There's still some things to take place. So there seems to be this pause, which we cause, call the church age. The NLT said it this way. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed. Christ on the cross. Appearing to have accomplished nothing, but he accomplished everything. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. Yes, that happened in 70 AD, and some people think it was the next one past that in the early 100s, but it happened. The end will come with a flood. The war and its miseries are decreed for that time to the very end. Okay, I don't need to end for time here. We can come back to some of these. I just want to go to the divisions of times. And and this, this is, when you read Daniel, we see the seven weeks, 49 weeks, some people say that's from Cyrus's degree. Some people say that's from Artaxerxes' degree. Then they go into the 434 years. The days from the temple in the city of Jerusalem are rebuilt in the arrival of Christ, the anointed one. And then it's that last week. Has it happened? Has it not happened? Are we in the millennial? Are we not in the millennial? For somebody from an amillennial perspective, from the redemptive work of Jesus' death on the cross to the temple destruction, they think it's all done. And because it's all completed, they believe we are now in the millennial. But the issue is, where is the righteous judgment that talks in the Bible that shall happen during the millennial? Because that's what it says. We'll be judged righteously. Does anybody here believe, and I won't name our leaders, does anybody believe any of our leaders are judging righteously. No. They're all over the map. Right? They're all over the map. They're, they're, you know, we're not supposed to abuse children unless it's with technology or they want to cut themselves up because they think they're another sex. Right is wrong. We're, we're, we're crazy. It, it hasn't... So I have a hard time. I find... I agree that there's this natural flow as you read through them, there seems to be something still missing. 
Yes, the Messiah is killed. The temple is destroyed. But, but there's still something missing in here. And so I believe there's a bit of a natural gap. So then we get into, and, and maybe we'll pick this up when we're back together next time, um, all these names that all talk about the 70th week of Daniel. And we'll get into week number 7 and uh, or 27, talk about some of the things of the future events. And then I can, I'll have these printed off for you the different timelines uh, that are there. And I have another one that I couldn't post. This one is just... So, post-tribulation believes the cross happened and that this goes on for life. And then we hit a tribulation period. And then we hit the millennium. But, but it's not until after the tribulation that anything happens with Christ coming back. This church takes a stand, and it's my belief that we go through this church age, right? And then Christ takes the church out of the world. Some people call that the second coming. It, it is and it, it is and it isn't. It is in the sense that we're taken, but it's not in the sense that he hasn't arrived back on earth a second time just yet to stay and govern. But then we have the millennial, which will be the reigning of his kingdom, and then the last judgment, and then eternity. Post-millennialism, they would believe you go up to here, have a millennial period, and then the second judgment. And an all-millennial believes shortly after Christ's death on the cross and resurrection, we hit this symbolic millennial. So it's not a literal thousand years, and we just go on and on and on. So sometimes it's hard if you're in a church that's all-millennial because they'll talk about the second coming, and they believe in a second coming. They just believe the second coming is after all this millennial period where we would hold to the fact that the, 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 the church is raptured before the tribulation. There's a tribulation. Christ comes back, and then he reigns a thousand years, final judgment, and into. Now, are you thoroughly confused yet? I'll get some resources that you can look at and some other people you can hear preach it and have those put together because it, it's... It is like rubbing up to a, a wall. And when you rub up a wall that has wet paint on it, if you do that too many times, you change the color of your shirt and it rubs it off the wall. I mean, and I've used that as an old, and I, I thoroughly believe that. You have to rub up to it a few times. And then you begin to understand it a little bit more. And sometimes you have to go through a lot of times before you get it. So I'll put some of this stuff together for you. This is a good one. It sort of states out what the beliefs of this church would be um, of the rapture, judgment seat of Christ, and what happens outside of the earth, then the second coming of Christ, and then the great white throne, and then the millennial and the tribulation down below. Swindoll put that one together. It was actually well put together. So that's it for tonight.